Hey, hey, and welcome back to the new season of Shade with me, Lou Mensah. This season, we will be reflecting on the power of the image within the civil rights movement. And my guests include founding members of Black Lives Matter, photographers and editors from publications such as Time magazine and ID, curators and art critics. And together, we will be reflecting on the imagery and the stories that came from the Black Lives Matter 2020 uprisings with the people who created them. And I want to say a big thank you to all of my Patreon patrons. I'm honoured to have you all involved in this show and supporting this work and elevating our stories. For as little as £1 a month, you can become a Shade patron and join others in supporting this work and elevating our stories. So go to patreon.com forward slash shade podcast to become a patron. OK, here we go. Black Images Matter, episode six. The Legacy of Gordon Parks. Support for Shades Black Images Matter series comes from Chloris, creators of organic superior grade CBD formulations. I talk with the co-founder Kim quite often about our holistic approach, not only to health, but also to our children's education, an education that nurtures an interest and investment in the world that we all share. And part of Chloris's investment is being a long-term partner of the charity Help Refugees. Cloris' co-founder, Pedram, has spent many years working with refugees as an interpreter. Kim said of our collaboration that it's crucial to support platforms that engage in important conversations surrounding race, as Shade does so brilliantly. So go to chloriscbd.com to find out more about the range and for information on help refugees. And sign up to support Shade through Patreon and you'll receive a Chloris subscriber gift. Episode 6, The Legacy of Gordon Parks. In conversation with photographer Andre D. Wagner. Now, we shared so many images during the uprisings, images to inspire, to comfort and connect us when some of us were still in lockdown and processing what was happening following George Floyd's murder. And it was that sense of connection through the sharing of the images that inspired this season. It was the work of Gordon Parks that we looked to a great deal during this time for a sense of grounding, perhaps. But also, as we shared his images, we reflected on the times that we have travelled through to where we are now at this point within the civil rights movement. And I wanted to dedicate a full episode to appreciating Park's legacy with Andre through the lens of his own beautiful work. And I took no hesitation in asking him to be a guest for this episode. He was the one photographer that I wanted to talk to. So thank you, Andre. And this is a special episode, everyone. I hope you enjoy it. This particular episode that I was so keen to talk to you about is about legacy and in particular the legacy of Gordon Park's work and the effect it's had on so many of us and how it continues to do so and then how you work as well but before we start I'm always really interested in hearing the stories of the artists I speak to and their younger selves and how they saw the world around them when they were younger and how they picked up messages about themselves from like the tv shows they watched and like the magazines they might have read and and how 
they were represented. And I just wondered how you experienced that as a child. I was an athlete. I played basketball and that was such a huge part of my life. I think just kind of having that part of my world and, and watching sports and especially here in America and with basketball, you know, black athletes, you know, kind of dominate the field. And so I felt like I always seen a representation of me in that sense. But even outside of that, like I would remember growing up and, you know, watching BET or watching them live in color. And so, and it's just growing up in the black community. So, you know, even though that, yeah, maybe the majority of what was available or was out there on TV and, and cinema and stuff would, you know, not really be catered to the black community. Um, I just feel like my world was all about that because that's just like what I was around. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then as you grew older, you, uh, you moved to New York. I think it was to do a master's in social work, but somehow you came to photography and you can tell us a little bit about that. But I imagine that's when Gordon Parks's work represented something within you as well that felt so right and inspiring. I, I moved to New York in January 2010 and I moved here to get my master's in social work. And But when I was an undergrad, um, also, you know, I was playing basketball and I remember in those early years you know a school just kind of wanting to sign up for some easy classes and I seen a photography class on the list and I signed up on it for it just thinking it would be like an easy thing I was not interested at all in this class just kind of breeze through it you know and so you you know when I moved here um you know, New York just turned my whole world upside down. I started to meet artists and photographers and I started going to museums and galleries and, you know, photography just took a whole different turn. I think I just started to realize serious work and I was like, wow, like photography can do this and make me feel like this. And I think slowly I started to kind of like find this connection with like what I was concerned with and, and passionate and interested in with as far as like social work and the, the work I was trying to do and also how I could kind of marriage that with, you know, my concerns and the stories that I want to tell with photography. And so I think all of that, you know, in finding Gordon Park's work early on, you know, just kind of searching out black photographers, you know, he kind of like embodied that like straight from the jump with all the stories that he did some life to also just his personal story, you know, coming from Fort Scott, Kansas and, you know, making a making his own way. Um, I just felt like I res everything about his story resonated with me so deeply and so profoundly. Um, and also just dealing with like who he was as a black man, you know, one of the only black photographers to, to work in the capacity that he did in his generation. When I moved to New York, one of the first books one of, one of my friends gave me was a uh, the Gordon Parks, I think, uh, a choice of weapons. And, you know, so like that was just all very formative in the beginning. One of the things about Parks' work that is so interesting to me is, you know, was able to photograph this range of, you know, Black life and emotions. I think still, even in my own personal practice and how I work and, and make work, still just thinking about like, you know, how, how do I tell the stories? How do you know, just show the whole multifaceted ways of and of life. Um, I think all of that kind of rings true for me. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and you mentioned earlier that you know the the camera was like a a tool as a weapon, and we're talking, you know, in the context of activism. The camera is so powerful. 
I'm wondering how your relationship with your camera developed yeah through the summer of 2020 you know my relationship to my camera has from the jump has been something that i knew that was just important for me to wrestle with and try to figure out you know i know plenty of photographers you know that are street photographers a lot of them are white and i just i know for a fact that my experience is just very different from theirs i could never find any writing about it nobody was talking about you know what it's like to be a black man and walking around the city taking mm street pictures. Over time, I just realized that like, I have to get comfortable in my body. I have to understand that I'm well within my right. I'm, I, I work with a Leica. It's a small camera. You know, it, it's yeah. really just it's like a handheld. It's black. And even simply, you know, walking down the streets of Manhattan, you know, if I have my camera in my hand down by my side, just even the looks that I'll that I'll get from that, you know, it's like it just doesn't feel good because it's like it's almost like people like think that I'm like carrying a weapon literally and it's just like yeah yeah it's, yeah it's just like geez when you're out you know dealing with that and you're trying to make photographs and you're photographing strangers and you're trying to think about composition and you're hot you know it's just it's, it's, you know it's was, a lot it's a lot um but it's like it's it as a photographer those are the things you have to work out and, and figure it out I've already kind of have been grappling with this because this is my existence and so leading up, you know, you know, in the beginning in the, of New York with the pandemic, I was out making photographs and it was really hard. It was already taking an emotional toll on me. One day I was walking down my street in my neighborhood and just my camera's in my hand and these cops are like coming out of this brownstone and they see my camera and immediately like, you know, super aggressive. Like, screaming at me hey what are you doing stop right there you know my camera strapped around my wrist and i turn around and put my hands up because immediately i already i know exactly what it is you know it's because i have yeah, this small yeah. thing in my hand and they're just making yeah. this assumption so i turn around my hands is up and then they don't even say anything after that they just look at me and then just get in their car and drive off you know yeah and this kind of thing isn't the this isn't the first time something like this has happened to me and then not even two weeks later, George Floyd gets murdered. Um, I'm headed out to Manhattan to go photograph. And I'm standing on the subway platform and I'm photographing this this lot that used to be a community garden in my neighborhood. And this is the first time I see construction workers actually working on the lot. And I take a couple of pictures as I'm waiting for the train to come. And I think the construction mm -hmm. workers didn't want me photographing. so. The one guy, he like kind of picks up this iron rod and he points it at me and kind of he does this shooting motion and they're kind of laughing, you know, like he's shooting me. Oh, this God. is the day after the George Floyd murder, you know. And so, yeah, I get to Foley Square in Manhattan, which is like the second day of the protest. And I'm I just feel empty. I, I'm enraged. I don't you know, feel safe. In that moment, mm -hmm. I decided that, like, you know what, I need to to kind of tend to myself and, and how I'm feeling right now. And I, and I decided to go back home and not photograph the protests and, and just went the complete opposite way and was thinking about, you know what, like, yes, this moment is so important and it, it does need to be documented. But for me and what I need right now, it's like I needed to kind of go back to the studio. I needed to start working on finishing work that I have been working on for so long to, that actually deals a little bit about like what we're going through, but more about the day to day, you know, not this like sensational moment right now, but I'm out here on the streets every day photographing my community and photographing the experience of being black in New York, you know, 
And so yeah. I went the other yeah. way. And um, that was a hard decision to make after I sat down and, and was thinking about it. I think there was there's power to the decision I made. What you've just said is so important for so many different reasons. The first reason is people don't understand what the practicalities and what the actual what your life is actually like on the streets as a photographer add to that you know you're uh, in a black body taking photos add to that we're going through a pandemic and everything that happened with George Floyd and and for you to say that of course this is going to affect me just telling that story is so important because actually I don't hear people talking honestly about the experiences of, of doing the work that they do as a black photographer. And I know that when I was learning photography myself, I didn't have the money to go to university to study it. So I, uh, I literally just went to bookshops and I taught myself and there was no internet then. And so I would just read interviews of other photographers to try and understand, you know, yeah. to, just to teach myself and educate myself and to share the story like you just have that's just really important Hey, hey, it's Lou here with a quick break to tell you about the second episode of a new four-part collaboration between Shade and Convergence, which will be broadcast as part of the South London Gallery's Convergence Community and Film Festival on Saturday the 20th of February. Join us then where I'll be in conversation with Courtia Newland, the screenwriter for Steve McQueen's Small Axe production of Lover's Rock and Red, White and Blue. Our conversation will be available as bonus content wherever you listen to Shade Podcast. And you'll also find us on the South London Gallery website and SoundCloud. What's really interesting to me is that I read about like your your routine of working, this seasonal routine that you have. I don't know if you still work this way, but you're out on the streets in the summer and you go out at daybreak and you come back at, at sundown and you travel through various boroughs of New York photographing and then and then in the winter days you're more in the studio in your in your dark room. I just got this beautiful sense of like meditation happening. I mean I'm the same way in the beginning. I mean, especially, you know, I, I wasn't, I didn't go to art school. I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't formally trained. And so I've, you know, done the same thing as far as searching the internet for interviews and reading how photographers, you know, just operate and how they do things. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, all of that has kind of helped me figure out in a way just how to, how to go about street photography. To me, it's something that I just have to do day in and day out. And that's when I get the best results. So, you know, I think I kind of, and I think I also just kind of come from, I think my background as an athlete, it forms how I operate as a photographer. Because as, as an athlete, it's like the performance piece is such a small part. So in a way, that's kind of how I approach my art practice where, you know, if I want to go out and photograph, you know, I want to structure my day around kind of how society operates. So yeah, I want to, I want to go out and hit the streets as early as possible. So I'm going to be outside by eight o'clock and you know photograph people as they're going to school and going to work and and just like that morning activity and then I decided I would take my lunch break early so I would take my lunch break at like 11 you know and then be back on the streets by 11 30 and photograph them from noon until two three o'clock and then maybe I'll take another break or 
you know, take a rest at a park and then go back out and then photograph, you know, until as people are like ending their days and until sundown. So I just started to make that structure because I know that I respond to a routine really well. You know, making photographs on the street is, it's it's hard to do. It's, it's like, how do you make a photograph that is distinct when everything is in flux and you can't control anything? So it's like, I want to continue to put myself in situations, you know, to be successful. And so that, you know, really is a, is a big part of it and how I operate. Like, how do people react, like, just everyday people? I wonder about the interactions you have with, with, with different people. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's, it's taken a, a long time for me to, to really truly get comfortable. I think it, it is a very physical thing. It's like you're moving around and, you know, I think a, a large part, a, a lot of times I'm constantly thinking about like where to stand in relation to what I'm photographing. And so, you know, the physicality is a big part. Um, and then also like just my energy, the, the energy that I bring to the streets, you know, I'm always trying to bring positive kind of energy, you know, if I'm especially, you know, if I'm like really working close to people and I'm, my camera's in front of them, you know, I'm, I want to, I want to like, I want to be smiling. I want to operate in a way that where people can sense my own confidence and what I'm doing. And you start to just learn little tricks and, and just ways of making images and getting close to people without you know, making big waves without startling people. I think my background in social work and just kind of knowing how to approach just different situations has helped me a lot. You kind of just learn all of these just ways of, of navigating that space. So you, cause I think in the beginning, I, I would come home and I would develop the film and I just, the images, I was just like, oh, they're so close to what I want. And I felt like I had the ability to make better images, but I was, I was being too timid, you know? And I think yeah. there just came a time where I was just like, okay, I'm not going to come home and be disappointed every day or else I just need to go back to be a social worker. I speak about, you know, the, the, the difficulties or the hard parts of being a street photographer, but it's also like, it's such a great thing to do because as people are just living their lives and doing what they do, you know, I have this amazing job of like noticing everything that everybody's just walking past and doesn't care about, you know, but, you know, looking at the beauty of just the the natural order of things that are just around us. And like, that's what my job is. And I take that very seriously. I meet a lot of, you know, just amazing people and people are curious and, and open. So I've just learned, you know, just to kind of go with the ebbs and flows of it all, you know, and just kind of like understand that there's going to be times when I'm out there and I don't, you know, necessarily want to be there. It's not always like I'm just super ecstatic to make photographs. But like I said, it's part of the process and the work has to get done. So I think that structure and how I kind of create this, you know, I go out and this is how my days are. And, you know, like you said, even seasonally, I kind of switch the vibe up. And you said about Park's work that... The beauty in his work comes from the recognition of what's hidden in plain sight. And I see that in all of the work that you do as well. And you've just talked about that, you know, it's every day you're in the, the, the privileged position of really seeing how people live their everyday lives. And I just wonder when you take a step back and look at your work, what does it reveal to you about people and communities and the life that they're living I really think about the work that I've been doing, like, in my community. Here in Bushwick, which is, you know, predominantly, 
black and um, Puerto Rican and Dominican. I just see beauty in our lives uh, that, that constantly kind of gets overlooked. How beautiful does it look, you know, where I have this, this black boy on a bicycle carrying his son and he has his two friends next to him and they got pizza boxes in their hands and they're just, you know, probably on their way back home to, to hang out. But we never look at the stop and look at that. Lastly, just to finish up, I want to talk about the work that you've put together for your books. And you have a new book that will be coming out soon, New City Old Blues. What stories will you be telling in this book? It kind of takes this structure of where you start off in my community and my neighborhood, giving you a sense of what it's like to, to be here. And then it goes on a journey. We leave the neighborhood and go into Manhattan and you move around the city. I think a lot about the, the psychological effects of of how of what I'm photographing, because we mentioned earlier about, um, you know, parks photographing the, the beauty of things that are hidden in plain sight. And. You know, I think about, you know, some of these images that I've made in Manhattan where it's like the long uh, young black kid in like the sea of faces on 34th Street where it's like an image like that is hidden in plain sight. But it's also, you know, I hate this word charge, but it's charged with this kind of psychological um, understanding of the moment. Like I made that photograph on that street because I felt like I am that boy. And so. You know, I think this work, you know, takes somebody on a journey of what it might be like to, to be in one's own community and then to have to leave that community to go kind of operate in the greater world and then also coming back. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, sorry, this is a long interview, but I just got one more question for you. Just one. No, it's, I'm, it's, I'm... I know what it's like being interviewed, Andre, because I've been on other podcasts as well. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is actually exhausting. Do you have one last question? And seeing as this this episode is about legacy, what would you hope that your legacy will be through your work? Oh, I mean, that's that's hard. But um, I think, you know, when I go out and try to make work, I just try to be to be true and honest and to really tell it like it is. You know, I think I make images that could be just full of hope and life and beauty. Um, and I also make images that could be harder to deal with and grapple with, but are just as important. Honesty is just part of the legacy. Thank you, Andre, so much. Yeah, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, it's Lou here with my takeaway from my conversation with Andre. I was so struck by Andre's contemplation over the push-pull effect that he and perhaps many of us feel during heightened and critical moments of the movement, just like we saw unfold last summer. The personal, physiological tension between the duty we sometimes feel to be present as these moments unfold and how Andre, in that moment, had to decide between documenting what he saw and the voice inside him telling him to recalibrate, to return to safety and and to continue with his existing work. And that's just it, isn't it? The work, as we sometimes like to call it, isn't just done in these heightened, visible moments, but it happens within our own time. He reminded me how important it is to connect with that and to stabilise within those moments. So do check in with yourselves and with each other and let me know your thoughts on this conversation as you always do. I love hearing from you. Until next time, take care.
If you enjoyed this show, please support the work by subscribing via whatever app you listen to your podcasts on. And consider becoming a Shade patron by visiting patreon.com forward slash Shade Podcast. Shade is produced and hosted by me, Lou Menser, and the music is created for Shade by legendary composer Brian Jackson, half of the power duo Gil Scott Heron and Brian Jackson. Thanks to Content is Queen for assistant editing and to C.A. Davis for editing, mixing and sound design. Be sure to listen to C.A.'s own brilliant show called A Lato Thought. I'll let C.A. tell you a little bit about that now. Thanks for listening. See you next time. My name is C.A. Davis. And this is A Lotto Thought, an immersive podcast that dismantles post-racial myths about mixed-race identities. Analyzing American history, law, and empire, each episode examines a contemporary idea about mixed-raceness in order to reveal that race is the lie that became real. You see, in America, mixed-race people have been routinely exploited to both justify and challenge systems of white supremacy. The hypo-descent rule became the formalized definition of hereditary slavery. But people are not mixed. History is mixed. In the early 20th century, in Harlem, New Orleans, Black and South Asian peoples made lives together. The Creek Nation and the Cherokee Nation joined at Greenwood and Asher, right where the Tulsa riots occurred. And it's those historical processes of empire, war, immigration, economics, that mix us all up. The idea that mixed race people are somehow more biologically, genetically fit I mean, that's just not true. Some multiracial people say, yes, they are black, but it doesn't encompass the fullness of, say, being raised by a Korean mom. So tune in as academic research and histories are brought to rich sonic life and woven together with the voices of intellectuals leading their fields. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter, both at L-A-T-T-O underscore T-H-O-U-G-H-T and subscribe on your favorite podcast app today. My name is C.A. Davis, and I'll talk to you all soon.